we're going to just dive right into it because we've got a lot of ground that I want to cover tonight because I didn't want to take more than one week. So if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, we're going to begin in Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. Luke's Gospel, chapter 12. And again, tonight's message is on separating fact from fear, a biblical perspective on the crisis in America. Can I just say right at the outset, this is not going to be a political message because I'm not a politician. And I personally don't believe that politicians or the governments of this world have the answer anyway. Jesus Christ is the answer to this broken world. In Luke's Gospel, chapter 12, beginning at verse 54, Jesus also said to the crowds, When you see a cloud rising in the west, you say at once, A rainstorm is coming, and it does. And when you see the south wind blowing, you say, There will be scorching heat, and there is. You hypocrites, you know how to interpret the appearance of the earth and the sky, but how can you not know how to interpret the present time? Now, in the biblical context, Jesus is simply saying to his audience, the Messiah, the one who's been prophesied in the Old Testament, is standing before you, and all the signs and wonders that accompany the Messiah is here. And you do not know how to interpret that. You're rejecting me as your Messiah. But in a wider application and context, Jesus is also making the point to all generations of Christians who've come after this, that each of us and each generation should be able to take what we are experiencing in our lives and be able to place it in a biblical context. We should be able to look at the times in which we live and what's going on and be able to look into the Bible and see what does the Bible say about this. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I felt so led by God to do this because after all this stuff began to happen in our country, I had Christians whose faith was being shaken, and, and they had questions like, are, are we going through the tribulation right now, and is this, is this the harbinger of a, of a permanent economic world collapse, and what's going to happen? And I started to realize that the Bible answers a lot of these things, and if we just knew more about what the Bible said and what's going to happen and what's coming, I think it would alleviate a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear because God, first of all, does not want His children to live in fear. God wants His children to live by faith. And so hopefully tonight, even as we go through some of these passages of Scripture, it is my hope and prayer that God will encourage your heart and strengthen your faith. I'm not going to paint a rosy picture I'm going to paint what I believe is a realistic biblical picture about where we are in the world right now and where we are headed. And so that's why I wanted to turn there first because I think we can interpret the present time based upon a biblical context. What got us here? I don't want to spend a lot of time because we pretty much know what got us to this point. But I want us to see it from a biblical context. If you will turn over to the New Testament book of Galatians. What are some of the things that has brought us to this point as a country, as a world? Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8. Throughout the Bible, God lays down what I call biblical principles, axioms, truths. And there's no way around them. Because God has set them up. And one of the eternal principles that God has revealed to us in His Word is this one, found in Galatians chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, where Paul tells the Galatian Christians, Do not be deceived. God will not be made a fool, for a person will reap what he sows. Because the person who sows to his own flesh will reap corruption from the flesh. But the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. And one of the things that has brought us to this point and one of the things that we are realizing is that we are simply, as a nation and as a group of people, reaping what we have sown. Biblical principle. Pretty self-explanatory. If you'll turn over to the book of 1 Timothy in the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 6. 
1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 6. Another biblical principle that has brought us to this point is even amongst us as Christians, we have to own this sometimes, a lack of contentment and a love of material things and of money. And the Bible speaks to that end. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6, Paul writes, Now godliness combined with contentment brings great profit. For we have brought nothing into this world, and so we cannot take a single thing out either. But if we have food and shelter, we will be satisfied with that. Those who long to be rich, however, stumble into temptation and a trap and many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all evils. Some people in reaching for it have strayed from the faith and stabbed themselves with many pains. Again, the Bible speaks about these things. Long ago, the Bible warned us. You're going to reap what you sow. We we can't sow one thing and expect to reap another. If we're planting Apple seeds, we're going to reap an apple tree. We're not going to reap something different. And yet, sometimes we are deceived by our spiritual enemy and we even deceive ourselves into thinking, I can sow this and I can reap something else. And God simply says, not true. God asks all of us to learn to be content and to not live our lives loving things more than we love God and we love others. Another passage, just real quickly, that we're going to touch on tonight. We're going to get to some good news in just a moment. 2 Timothy chapter 3, just one book over. 2 Timothy chapter 3. In this portion of Scripture, Paul is revealing to us why living in what the Bible calls the last days is going to present some unique challenges. And there's no doubt that the Bible doesn't sugarcoat the days of human history leading up to the return of Christ. The Bible doesn't picture the days of human history getting better. It is going to be a unique time to be alive. It is going to be a challenging time to be alive. But it's also an exciting time to be alive if we're Christians for this reason. Because the darker the world gets that rejects God and rejects His Word and rejects the ways of God the brighter our light as Christians and as the church can shine in this dark world. And we can be a tremendous witness like never before. And I believe that God even allows things like this to purify the church and to strengthen the church and to maybe even bring us a great spiritual revival before Jesus comes. Because my friends, I believe Jesus is coming back very soon. So here's what Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 3, understand this, that in the last days, difficult or perilous times will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, savage, Opposed to what is good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, loving pleasure rather than loving God. They will maintain the outward appearance of religion, but will have repudiated its power, so avoid people like these. And then turn over to verse 13, same chapter. But evil people and charlatans will go from bad to worse, deceiving others and being deceived themselves. Doesn't paint a great picture. 
But I want you to notice something. The reason the days are difficult leading up to the coming of the Lord, you could take all 17 of those characteristics that are listed here and you could basically lump them under one word. Character. And the reason the days are difficult is because of the lack of character, the lack of integrity that is going to permeate the human race. That according to the Bible, even though we have gotten so advanced technologically, though we can travel anywhere in the world today and go places that our grandparents and ancestors only dreamed about and at the speeds we can go and all of that now, that on the base level, human beings, from a moral standpoint before God, have gotten no better in the last couple of thousand years. In fact, according to the Word of God, it's only getting worse. There's a void out there in our world today. A spiritual void. And that's why I said right up front that this world is broken just like One day we recognized, hopefully, our lives were broken. And we may have tried to look everywhere and to anyone to try to fix us. And we hopefully came to a place in our life where we realized and acknowledged the only one that could fix me and put me back together again and and put my broken life back together again was Jesus Christ. And He's the only one that can do that today. Now, though we painted what I believe is a biblical picture of where we're at and what God is here, we as Christians should not be discouraged. God has known all about this. He prophesied about this. He predicted it would be like this. And He has called us now as His church, who are alive at this time in history, to rise up and meet the challenge of this unique time in human history. Realizing that we do not have to face this challenge on our own, in our own strength, in our own wisdom or whatever, but we can draw upon the unending strength and power of the Lord to meet the challenges before us and ahead of us as His people. Because again, God does not want us to live in fear, but to live by faith. I don't want to spend a lot of time, because I could have spent a lot of time just on prophecy tonight. But I I do want to interject this. And and let me just go there. I didn't want to take time to go through all this, but Lisa, could you get me some water, please? Thank you. It's great to have a good wife, I'll tell you. Um, I've lost my train of thought. Okay. The Bible teaches that though the Antichrist is not going to be revealed, I believe, until after the rapture of the church and we're gone, even though I hear people always speculating about who the Antichrist is, if you're a Christian, you're, you're going to be in heaven with Jesus when the Antichrist is revealed, okay? So hopefully that will alleviate some, some anxiety and fear. But the Bible does teach in 1 John chapter 4, the first three verses, that the spirit of the Antichrist is already present on the earth. And the Bible teaches in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 7 that the hidden power of the Antichrist is already working. And the reason I want to bring that up, thank you, I've got a couple of them now, that's okay, I can use them. The reason why that's important is because we have to understand as Christians that even though the Antichrist will not be revealed in our lifetime, that there is the foundation being laid right now in the world so that the Antichrist can come on the world scene. Again, all based upon what the Bible has predicted. One of the things that the Bible predicted long ago that was scoffed at for centuries... And now, folks, we're living it. We can see it. Is the Bible taught that one day, as we move towards the return of Christ, one of the things we're going to see is a world economic system 
where every nation on the world is tied together by the economy. Oh my goodness. If, if people don't realize that that's true today, that we live in an era that the Bible said would happen, where the Bible said the last generation of human history would be a generation that lived in globalism, which is laying the foundation for this world economic system, and that's already in place. I mean, you hear about it this last week. The World Bank had meetings. The World Economic Centers got together. Certain nations got together to discuss. Because we all know that our economies are tied to each other. For years I had people ask me, Pastor Jeff, why is not America the superpower talked about in biblical prophecy? Why does it not play more of a prominent role in biblical prophecy? Well, if you understand biblical prophecy, you understand that because of the world economic system, no nation is really going to be a superpower. All nations will be tied together, and what affects one affects all the others. And so one nation's not going to have the pull that it once did. In fact, as we even see it today, because of their sheer population, countries like China and India are going to have a growing economic impact in our world and what is going on economically just because of the sheer population of those nations. The Bible predicted it. And because of this world economic system, this world economic system the Bible also predicted would drive us to two other things. One day, a world government and a world false religion. And that the Antichrist would be over all of those three components. And that what is going on in the world today is laying the foundation. Another thing that is laying the foundation for the Antichrist is the void of leadership we have in our country and in this world today. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'll just say for me... I got more and more frustrated trying to watch Washington, D.C. figure out something that the more it went on, you realize those people can't figure this out. They don't have the answers. And again, this is not a political message, but I will say this. We're, we're going we're to talk biblical, but part of biblical is it's okay for us to hold our elected officials accountable for what they have done. But the world doesn't have the answers. And that's why, because of the growing complexities and difficult problems that the world is going to face as we move forward in human history, and that people around the world are looking at their world leaders going, you coming up with anything? And they're trying to do this and trying to do that to solve the problems, and nothing seems to get really solved that when the Antichrist is revealed and he's supernaturally empowered and he's given supernatural wisdom and he can begin to put some answers down to some of these very complex problems that the world is facing, no wonder the world will go, we worship you. You're, you're the first person in years who's been able to come up with some things that seem to work. And make sense. We will follow you wherever you lead us. The foundation of all of this is being laid in our lifetime. And if you doubt that, again, how can anyone doubt that what the Bible predicted thousands of years ago in the Old Testament books of Daniel and Joel and Zechariah about a world economic system and we see it playing out in our life. And if the Bible is accurate about that, then doesn't that motivate us a little bit to get in and peer into the Word of God and find out what else is in there? I hope so. In fact, I hope that's one of the things that motivates us to continue to see Bible studies like the mind grow. Because as we see the Bible being so accurate, that hopefully it spurs within us a desire to say, what else does God have to say about things in my life and what's going to happen? With all of that said, Turn back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17.
In Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, beginning at verse 26, I just want to set the background for this and why this passage is so important. One of the things that causes a lot of confusion with folks, and I understand that there's a lot to understand and grasp, but keep studying the Word. The next event on the prophetic calendar of God is the rapture of the church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. When the church is raptured or caught up to heaven, all true believers in Jesus Christ will be taken off the earth and taken back to heaven. And when the rapture happens, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus Christ will not set foot on the earth at the rapture. He meets us in the clouds. After the rapture of the church, then there comes on the earth what the Bible calls the seven-year tribulation period. During that seven-year tribulation period, in fact, at the very beginning, the Antichrist will be revealed. Also during that period, in the middle of that period, is what's called the abomination of desolation, where in the middle of that seven-year period, three and a half years in, The Antichrist will go into the temple rebuilt in Jerusalem and will declare himself as God and basically ask the world to worship him. He will break his peace treaty with the nation of Israel and the last three and a half years of the tribulation will be even worse than the first three and a half years. At the end of the seven-year tribulation is what the Bible calls the Battle of Armageddon where the nations of the world basically encircle the nation of Israel and try to wipe the nation of Israel off the map. It's not going to happen in our lifetime, folks, but they're going to try to make it happen at the end of the tribulation period. But the Bible teaches that at that moment, Jesus Christ will come back, and that's what the Bible terms the second coming of Christ. And many people get confused in prophecy because they do not differentiate between the rapture, where Jesus Christ meets Christians in the air and takes us to heaven and the second coming of Christ where he literally comes back at the battle of Armageddon, puts down all rebellion, and basically then sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years in which the Bible calls the thousand year millennial reign of Christ. And where he literally puts his feet on the earth and will rule and reign on this earth. And you and I will be a part of that reign if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior. Now the reason I say all that is for this reason. This passage that we're going to look at right now, Jesus is actually talking to people who are alive during the tribulation period. The rapture has already happened, and he's talking about signs that are leading up to the second coming of Christ. And the reason that's significant is because of what Jesus says. Notice, beginning at verse 26. Chapter 17, verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so too it will be in the days of the Son of Man. People were eating, they were drinking, they were marrying, they were being given in marriage right up to the day Noah entered the ark. Then the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, people were eating, drinking, buying, selling, planting, building. But on the day Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be the same on the day the Son of Man is revealed. And here's what Jesus is simply saying. He's paralleling the time that he comes back, the second coming, at the end of the tribulation, with the way things are in the days of Lot and in the days of Noah. And the reason this is actually an encouragement to us is because, again, I've had lots of people say, are we entering a worldwide collapse? What's what's our life going to be like? Are we living in the tribulation now? And here's the answer from the Bible. The answer from the Bible is basically Jesus says, you're going to survive this. It's not that we're not going to have to make some adjustments. It's not that we're not going to go through some maybe tough times economically and lean times and might have to readjust our life and our lifestyle, but we'll get through it because Jesus even said to the people who are alive during the tribulation before he comes back the second time, most things that's going to characterize people, he didn't point to their wickedness. He, didn't, he pointed to just the fact that they're going through their everyday routines. 
They're going to be marrying, giving in marriage. They're going to be planting, building, selling, buying, and all that. It's going to be life as usual. It's going to be routine. There's nothing going to upset the natural routine of life, even leading up to the second coming of Christ. Now, if that's true, how much more is that true on this side of the rapture? And all I'm saying from the Bible is, don't be afraid that the world is going to collapse. Don't be afraid that somehow, you know, we're just not going to survive. Yes, we will. Again, we might have to make some hard choices. We might have to make some adjustments. But we will survive and move on. A great example of that in our lifetime is 9-11. 9-11 changed a lot of things in our life. Life on 9-12-01 was different than 9-11-01. And we made adjustments in how we travel and how we do different things and all that. And we made adjustments, we adapted, and we've moved on. And this is exactly what's going to happen through this crisis. Is it a terrible crisis? Yes. Was it a needless crisis? Yes. Uh, Are there all kinds of fallout from this? It's going to happen for years to come? Yes. But we as a nation and we as a world will somehow figure out how to deal with it, how to adapt, how to adjust, and we will move on. That's what Jesus is teaching, I think, here. Just one of the things he's teaching here in Luke chapter 17. With all that said, I want to get to some verses of hope and comfort tonight. So I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. If I was to pick a book of the Bible that I would encourage people to read that had a lot of different principles and verses of how do we respond in crisis situations? We're going through a crisis right now. What if I'm going through a personal crisis? What if we face another crisis before Jesus comes to get the church? How do I respond as a follower of Jesus Christ? I think the book of Hebrews is one of the best places to go, and I'd like to share some verses That I think will encourage you tonight. First of all, in Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 18, he's talking here about those who have found refuge in Jesus. And he says in verse 18 of Hebrews 6 so that we who have found refuge in him may find strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Through two unchangeable things, since it is impossible for God to lie, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. First of all, God says to all of us in any kind of crisis, find your refuge in me. Don't put your your security, your safety, your surety in anything on this earth, in anything man-made, in anything of man. Find your refuge in God. God is our refuge, Psalm 46. A very present help in time of trouble. Though the mountains fall into the sea, I'm okay because God is my refuge. He is my rock. I hope tonight that God is your refuge and that you or others are not trying to find their refuge, their security, their stability in anyone or anything other than God. And when you and I place our refuge in God or we find our refuge in God, notice what he says in verse 18. When we find our refuge in him, then we find strong encouragement. You want to be encouraged The best way for you and I as Christians to be encouraged is to make him our refuge. To make him our place of security, stability, and safety. And when we do that, the Bible promises us we will find not just encouragement, strong encouragement. And we need strong encouragement in the days in which we live. And God will give us all the encouragement we need to meet the challenges of the days in which we live, this unique time in human history. In fact, he goes on in verse 18 to say, hold fast to the hope set. The reason why our hope is set and that we can be so confident about it is because our hope is not in anything of this earth and anything man-made. It is in the Lord himself who cannot change and it is in his word that cannot change. The psalmist said, forever, O Lord, your word is settled in the heavens. There's nothing that can be done. 
And certainly we know that through this crisis in our country and in our world, God is not up there in heaven wringing his hands going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Even as Christians, we have to be reminded and encourage each other, God is on the throne and he is in control. And we need to find our refuge in him. That's why he goes on in verse 19 to say, when we find that and we hold fast to that hope, this hope can be an anchor for our soul. Most Christians believe that the most common symbol for Christianity down through history was the fish. In fact, that's why a lot of Christians have the fish on the back of their car today. Nothing wrong with the fish. But the most common symbol throughout history for Christianity is the anchor. Go to the catacombs of Rome, and you will see the Christians who gathered there under the persecution of the Roman Empire had anchors all over the catacombs in Rome. Because for them, there was something very powerful in that example of the anchor. Because they knew that that anchor was what secured them. And no matter what the storms of life or how the waves of life roared and how the winds howled, that they had an anchor that was sure and steadfast and they could not be moved. I hope you have that anchor for your soul. You see, crisis when it comes in our lives or in our country, doesn't necessarily at that point build our faith, but it certainly does reveal our faith or our lack of it. And God wants us again to come back and find our refuge in Him and realize that we have everything we need for the anchor for our soul. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25 where the writer of Hebrews also implores us as Christians to encourage each other. He says, and let us take thought of how to spur one another on to love and good works, not abandoning our own meetings as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other, and don't miss this last phrase of verse 25, and even more so because you see the day drawing near. And I believe the day there refers to the day that Jesus is coming, which goes along with what the Bible already teaches, that as we move further ahead in human history towards the return of Jesus, we're living, according to 2 Timothy 3, in difficult days, challenging days. No wonder Christians need to get together more and encourage each other more, because we need to be encouraged more. That's why I say to Christians all the time, man, don't abandon coming to church and getting into Bible studies and getting into life groups and small groups and all of that. We need the encouragement of one another more than ever today. That's what the Bible says. As you and I see the day approaching, we see the foundation for the Antichrist being laid. We see the world economic system in place. We see a united Europe. We see all the biblical prophecies unfolding before our eyes. Folks, let's get ready. Our redemption draws nigh. Let's encourage each other, the writer of Hebrews says. And then over in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35. He says, so do not throw away your confidence. That's what some are doing. They've lost their confidence in God, in His Word. When we go through tough times, that's one of the choices we have. The writer of Hebrews tells us, don't throw away your confidence because it has great reward. For you need endurance in order to do God's will and so receive what is promised for just a little longer and he who is coming will arrive and not delay. And he goes on to say, my people will live by faith. My people will live by faith, not in fear. Don't throw away your confidence. Hang in there. Keep trusting. Keep believing and what the Lord says. Then go over to Hebrews chapter 12. The first three verses. What do we as Christians need to do in crisis? Keep our eyes firmly fixed on Jesus Christ. In fact, the language here in the original language is basically telling us to turn our eyes away from everything and anyone else and to keep our eyes totally fixed and focused 
on Jesus alone. Here's what he says. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, we must get rid of every weight and the sin that clings so closely and run with endurance the race set out for us. Keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Last week, I'm watching the majority of the world keeping their eyes fixed on the stock market. Keeping their eyes fixed on the NASDAQ. Keeping their eyes fixed on the the foreign markets around the world. And what's going on here and what's going on there. And they've got their eyes here and they've got their eyes there. And their eyes are not where they should be, which are clearly focused on Jesus. That's where our eyes need to be. He is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set out for him, he endured the cross disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. Think of him who endured such opposition against himself by sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls and give up. He's our greatest encouragement. He's our greatest inspiration. He's our greatest example when we feel like giving up and throwing in the towel and wondering what do I do in a crisis situation. The Bible clearly says keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Get your eyes off of the circumstances. Get your eyes off of people. Get your eyes off of the stock market. Get your eyes off of your 401k. And get your eyes on Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 12. And then Hebrews chapter 13. Verses 5 and 6. Going back a little bit to where we started from about being content. In Hebrews 13, verse 5 and 6, your conduct must be free from the love of money and you must be content with what you have. For He has said, I will never leave you and I will never abandon you so that we can say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me. Wow. You see, more than ever, God is calling upon His people, not only through His strength, to rise to the challenge of this unique time in human history in which we live, but He is calling upon us as His people to live out our faith confidently. We shouldn't be cowering in the corner, wondering what in the world is going to happen or whatever. We should have our faith securely in the Lord and realize that He is on the throne and that everything that is happening here in human history is moving to the place exactly predicted by the Bible. That the foundations are being laid. That God isn't asking us to live in fear. He's asking us to rise up and live out our faith with confidence. Even if we would lose everything of this earth, man cannot take from us as Christians the one thing, the most important thing, and that is our personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They can't touch that. Therefore, we should live confidently knowing the Lord is my helper. And He's not going to ever abandon you. He's not going to leave you. Again, We may go through some hard times. We may have to adjust. But we'll figure it out. We'll move on. And hopefully we'll figure it out and move on by seeking God's wisdom and God's mind and God's heart. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. Aren't they great verses? Let me share with you a couple other verses in closing tonight. Turn to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. I want to give my daughter credit for this. God used my daughter to direct me to this passage of Scripture. So I want to give her props for this. 
Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Jesus, at the end of this passage called the Sermon on the Mount, ends his sermon this way. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does them is like a wise man who built his house on rock. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, but it did not collapse because it had been founded on rock. Folks, Jesus never promised us in our life that the rain wouldn't fall. Jesus never promised us as Christians that the floods wouldn't come. Jesus never promised us that the winds wouldn't beat against our house. But Jesus did promise us that if we would build our house on the rock and we would do what he is telling us to do, that no matter what happens, our house will stand. Because it's built on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ and on his word. But he goes on. Everyone in verse 26 who hears these words of mine and does not do them is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain fell, the flood came, and the winds beat against that house, and it collapsed. It was utterly destroyed. I think a question we all need to ask ourselves at times like this is, On what foundation have I been building my life? Have I been building my life on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ and on His Word? And have I been doing what He's been telling me to do so that I have a solid foundation that no matter what happens, it's not going to fall because it's built on the rock of the Lord Jesus Christ? Or has this crisis and maybe something else revealed that I've been building my life on a faulty foundation. A foundation that according to Jesus Christ, anything other than Him and His Word is sand. And it will collapse when the rains come and the floods come and the winds come. One other. Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, just verses 12 and 13, I have experienced times of need and times of abundance. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of contentment. First of all, let me just stop there. That's important. The Bible teaches that Becoming content is something that even as Christians we have to learn. We're certainly not born content. We're born as human beings and we live in a world where the world basically tries to teach us every day, you need this. If you don't have that, you're missing it. And we're, we get caught up with this. I mean, if this didn't work, then we wouldn't be spending millions of dollars on advertising every year. We wouldn't be having people in marketing and advertising because they know what we've come to know. That we are a people on this earth that if we're sold enough that this thing is something I I really need and it's going to really make a difference in my life and it's going to really satisfy and bring that fulfillment that I'm looking for. And if I just had that, it's the way we're born. But hopefully through our personal relationship with Jesus Christ, we come to realize that in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ, that He is all we need, that we are complete in Him, that we don't need anyone or anything else but Jesus. And we can learn as we spiritually grow and mature to be content and not allow the world to think we're missing something. If the world doesn't have Jesus Christ, they're the ones missing out, not us. That's why the psalmist could say in Psalm 23, verse 1, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. See, I believe as an obedient sheep of the Lord my shepherd that when I'm truly following him, I won't want for anything. 
Because according to Psalm 23, he will lead me to green pastures. He will lead me beside still waters. He'll even prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So Paul said, I've learned to be content. Hopefully through this experience, all of us can go up to another level of contentment in our life. And appreciate the things that we have, rather than griping and complaining and murmuring about the things we don't have. And then he goes on to say, I have learned to be content in any circumstance. I have learned the secret of contentment that whether I go satisfied or hungry, have plenty or nothing, here's the key, I'm able to do either or all things through the one who strengthens me. See, we love to use Philippians 4.13, and it's a great verse. And we pull that verse out of context and we use it for everything. And I'm, I'm not saying that it's wrong in certain situations, but I'm saying it's cool when you place Philippians 4.13 in its context and you realize it's in the context of learning to be content and learning to have much and learning not to hardly have anything in your life. And how do I have the strength to navigate those times where I'm prosperous and those times where I'm facing adversity? Through the strength that only Jesus can supply. That's what Paul says. I can do all things through the one who gives me strength. Folks, as I said at the very beginning tonight, this wasn't going to be a political message. This was going to be, for me, laying out different passages of Scripture that I believe address and put into a biblical context what we are seeing happening in our country and in our world today and hopefully give us a little bit more understanding maybe about it. But it's also much more than that. It's also allowing the Bible to speak to us and for us to say before God, God, what do you want me to do? Okay? I'm not in Washington. I'm, I'm not over here. I'm not, what do you want me to do? What do you expect out of me? What should be my response throughout this crisis? I believe we covered all of that throughout those passages in Hebrews. He wants us to find our refuge in Him. He wants us to sink our anchor for our soul down in Him, sure and steadfast. He wants us to look for ways to encourage each other and to get together as Christians so much more because we're living in challenging days. He wants us not to throw away our confidence, but to hold on to our confidence and the hope set before us. He wants us to keep looking at Jesus rather than looking at the markets. And He wants us to learn to be content and to realize that the Lord is our helper. And the Lord is not going to abandon us or leave us no matter what goes on in our world. The Lord will never turn His back on you, my friend. So that we can with confidence say to the world, the Lord is my helper. He's the one going to get me through. He's the one going to give me the strength to deal with whatever I have to deal with. The world desperately needs a clear, courageous, and confident testimony from God's people. And I pray that even tonight, that you and I have had our hearts stirred to, in a sense, say yes to Jesus. Jesus, I want to be one of those Christians in this world that will stand up in these challenging days and live out my faith with confidence and live out a clear, courageous, and confident faith. I hope that's your desire. That is certainly my desire. And I just want to say God bless all of you for being here tonight. Before we close, I want to invite you all back from now through Tuesday, December the 9th. Because from now through Tuesday, December the 9th, we're going to dive back into the book of James. And we're going to study the cover off of this Bible. 
this, this fall. And we're going to have some great worship. And hopefully this will be a place where you can find refuge and you can find encouragement every Tuesday night and where you can find encouragement every Tuesday night. Because you folks are an encouragement to me. Thank you for being here. Let's close in prayer. God, I just... I just pray right now that all of us, Lord, would just look to you. God, help us to get our eyes off of the things of this world and the people of this world. The governments, the leaders. It doesn't even matter, Lord, who's elected in our country as president because, Father, they're not our Savior. They're not our Deliverer. Our Deliverer is Jesus Christ. And there is no other name in under heaven given among men that can deliver mankind other than Jesus Christ. Help us, Lord, to look to Him, to find our refuge in Him, to keep placing our trust and faith in Him. And though we may have to, in the days ahead, face some difficult days and face some difficult choices in our lives and with our families, Lord, we know that you will be there every step of the way and you will never leave us and never abandon us so that we can always say with confidence, God is my helper. And I have learned whether I'm living in abundance or whether I'm living in poverty, I have learned, Lord, to be content because you are my sufficiency and I have everything because I have you, Lord. God, go with us tonight. May you have strengthened your people here in an unusual way. And continue, Lord, to pour out your spirit, Lord, in an unusual way. Not only here, but throughout this church and this community and this nation. And God, I'm asking for you to bring a revival upon our nation before Jesus comes. And use us, Lord, to make it happen, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I love you folks. Have a great week. God bless you.